And so now, please put away your phones, if you still have them out, and let's now hear the reading of Scripture. Our Scripture reading today is from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 16. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us, according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended, far above all the heavens, that he may fill all things. And he gave the apostles the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves, and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint, with which it is equipped when every part is Well, good morning. My name is Dan McDonald. I am uh, one of the pastors here at Grace Toronto, and it's my pleasure to give uh, you uh, this message this morning. I do encourage you to stay afterwards and join our live stream baptism service. It is going to be epic. Uh, You will not want to miss it, so stay and do the live stream afterwards. But this morning, I get the opportunity to introduce a new series for our church as we think about who we are as a church, particularly in this particular moment of our culture and of our church life. And it's a fragile moment, really. Uh, Our culture is uh, confused. Our culture is uh, discouraged. Our culture is divided. We don't know what to do with COVID. We are divided on political issues, social justice issues. This is a moment of great tension and fragility in our world. And that tension and fragility and division is seeping its way into the church. We are used to meeting together. We have not been able to. That's a moment of great confusion. Churches don't know uh, how much they should be responding to the culture and how much they should be sifting and engaging and maybe disagreeing with the culture in some of these political and social justice moments, and particularly with also with respect to re-engaging community in a time of COVID. So we're kind of feeling tossed and turned a little bit. And it's at times like this that anchors for ourselves and for us as a community are so helpful. And this morning, I want to begin to do that. 
because I've been hearing a lot of critique of the church, not only from an increasingly skeptical culture, but from an increasingly divided and critical church. Voices inside the church. Cottage industries are growing up inside the church community that do nothing but tear down the church and tell us what's doing wrong. And in that, there is a danger. We do need self-critique. We do need self-examination. I always enjoy when I hear skeptics point out our blind spots. But I am growing weary of Christians making much of themselves by tearing down others. And so this week, I want to begin to give an antidote for that. I want us to reconnect with who we are. The church is God's glorious wisdom. The church is God's beautiful body. The church is God's glorious bride. I want us to look at these things in the next few weeks. And this week, we want to talk about the church as God's united body. Unlike our culture, which has so many areas of fracture and division right now, no fundamental unity holding it together, the church has such a fundamental unity at our core. While our culture is fragmented racially, ethnically, socioeconomically, politically, the church is united spiritually. We are part of one body. We are one body. And we should act that way. That's the point Paul's making in this passage that we're reading to the Ephesians. He says two things I want to look at. We are united in our identity. And we are united in our mission. United in our identity and united in our mission. Let's uh, look at this scripture. It starts with a couple of practical things that we're supposed to do. I'm going to leave those as the practical applications because Paul then goes and says, you do these because of this reality. It's the reality I want to look at first, that we are united in our identity. I pick this up in verse 4. There's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to you all. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Isn't that beautiful? Here Paul is saying that there is a fundamental unity in our identity. We have one body. We were all regenerated, born again, became Christians through one spirit. There's one body and one spirit. And you were called to the one hope that belongs to you all. One body. We're called. Because we are part of the one body of Christ. You're not called to be unified. You are called to reflect the unity that actually already exists. When you become a Christian, you invite Jesus, we say, into your life. Really, you're inviting the Spirit of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, into your life. Two things happen. One, he comes in. Two, not only is he part of you, but he unites you to him. This is what theologians call union with Christ. You are spiritually united with Jesus. Therefore, you are forever part of him, part of his body. And you are forever, therefore, part of what it means to be a child, a beloved child of God the Father. Therefore, we have one Father who's Father over all. This profound new identity has implications He says, now that you have this identity, you are part of the body of Christ. You are one of my children. 
you share these things, a common inheritance, as it were. Uh, you not only have the same Lord, you have the same faith. And by that he means we believe the same truths, the same gospel, that Jesus is who he said he is. That God sent Jesus into human form to live a perfect life for you and I, to die a death on a cross as a substitute for you and I, and to raise him, to be raised from the dead that he may ransom, redeem, forgive, and justify you and I. The debt we owe, the debt that alienates us from God, is lifted because it's been paid for by Jesus. We all have that same truth. We have the same baptism, it says. Baptism signifies exactly what I have said. You have now been washed clean of all that is guilty and wrong about you by the work that Jesus did for you. We have the same hope, the hope of eternal life with God, a perfect, unending life in a perfect, unending creation. Think about it for a moment. If all this is true, then you are one with every other Christian who has ever lived, ever in human history, in whatever place, with whatever ethnicity, with whatever socioeconomic status, with whatever they have done, you are one with them. At your most fundamental level of identity, who you are, we are all part of the same family. We're all part of the same bodies. Feel the intimacy of that. We will one day inherit the same thing, a brand new world. One day, every Christian will be made alive with a new body, a perfect body, and inhabit a new creation with no decay, no death, no sin, no wrong. And every single person, and there will be billions of people, every single one, everyone is your family. Everyone is your brother or your sister. Crazy to think about. That's already true. Every joke, every conversation, every game of golf you will play, well, I'm assuming there's golf, everything you do will be with family in the renewal of all things. We're one in our identity. But even more powerfully, we're one in how we got this identity. If you look at verse 7, it says, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And then it talks about what it means. In saying he ascended, it means that he had also descended into the lower regions. That probably means his incarnation into earth. He who descended is the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. That's the ascension of Jesus to the right hand of God in heaven after he's been raised from the dead physically. This is saying that Jesus is the gift. He's the gift of grace to you and I. He gave his life to pay for the guilt that you and I have before God. The guilt of our own selfishness, our own division, our own pride. We were made children of God by the one beloved Son of God, who by his death paid for our guilt so we could be adopted and feel the same pleasure, the same joy, the same delight from God as he does, because we are united to him. He is the ultimate gift. Paul, though, here also quotes Psalm 68, which describes that ascension and leading a host of captives. That host of captives probably means angelic forces who defied God, who are now captured by what Jesus has done in his death. 
and resurrection. So, we're all part of one family. All God's children. Part of one body by the work of Jesus. We were all given the same identity. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one forgiveness of sins, one adoption, one Spirit of God brought into our lives by the same process, the gift of God in giving us Jesus. Firstly, in his life, death, and resurrection, and secondly, in the sending of his Spirit. Do you hear all that? No basis for division here whatsoever. Same inheritance, same identity, same process by which we became children of God. Now, it says at the end of this first part that, and Jesus gave us gifts. He gave us mm, an early deposit on that inheritance that we talked about that's coming. I know about an early inheritance or a deposit. When I got married to my wife Sue, her father offered us an early inheritance. He offered to give us part of our inheritance early to put a down payment on a house so that we could begin to enjoy a different kind of life, the life of owning a home. Now, because he wanted to give us part of the inheritance early, and it changed our life. It it gave us the ability to be homeowners. It gave us the ability to build equity. This is the picture here that God is giving us in this picture of what Christ has done. He is promising this final inheritance of a new body, a new resurrection, but he's giving us an early deposit. He's giving us now the forgiveness of sins. He's giving us now the Spirit of God in us. So the unity we will one day feel existentially, viscerally, cannot miss it. He's giving us enough now to feel and know it. And so I want to stop now and draw out some implications from this first point. If you're here and you're considering Christianity, if, if you're investigating, I need to ask you, where in our culture do you see anything approaching this kind of unity? This kind of deep fundamental identity that makes us all one at the deepest possible level. At the level of who we are. We became who we are in the same way. We were birthed, as it were, who we are by the grace of God in Jesus. We got all the same things, all the same identity markers. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one hope. We got a law, and we got it the same. Do we have diversity of gifts? Yes. But this fundamental family identity is nowhere in our culture, and it's showing in the fracturing of our culture into affinity groups and ideological groups, etc. Now, if you're here and you're a Christian, Paul is saying, you're not meant to work towards unity. You're meant to live out the unity that already has been worked into you. This is your fundamental identity. Yes, you're given different gifts, and I'll explain that later. That's our second point, because we're unified in mission. We are given different gifts, but they're not to create divisions. I remember waking up uh, Christmas morning when I was about 12 or 13. I had four other siblings, and I was acutely aware of my place and and and. I was always very competitive uh, with my standing in the family at the time. And so I would look and see the gifts and figure out who was getting what. And it was a measure of my immaturity that I was trying to figure out which individual in the family was getting the most gifts. 
But I began to notice as I got older, when I was 16 and 17 and 18, people would come over and they would look at our family and all the gifts and they go, look how much you guys love each other. Look at how many total gifts are under the tree. And I remember as I grew and I matured, I stopped being so caring about what my particular status was in, in the distribution of the gifts. And I started just rejoicing in the expression of love of us as we matured as a family, giving more and more generous gifts to each other and delighting more and more in the giving of gifts and sharing of gifts with each other. That's the picture Paul wants us, not to, not to be comparers and enviers and prideful boasters, as I spoke last week, but to enjoy the diversity and the plenitude of gifts that have been poured out as an expression of the love and the unity of this family. Unity of identity. We are one body, one family, grafted into this one beloved son, Jesus, by the grace of he himself coming down and giving his life for us and then sending us his spirit. This is a unity that transcends any other unity ever concocted, ever seen in creation. Secondly, there's a unity of mission. Here he talks about the different roles and the different functions, even what we would call offices of the church. He says, and he, God, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we attain to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God to maturity, to the measure of the nature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves, and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and craftiness and deceitful schemes. Paul now describes the unity we have in our mission as the body of Christ. Paul describes here a series of roles in the church, shepherds, teachers, evangelists, apostles, which are given to different people. And along with these roles, different giftings to fulfill those roles. But all this diversity of gifting, all this diversity of roles is focused on this unity. What he says the purpose is, the building up of the body of Christ. We're called to do this one thing, to build up Christ's body. Until, here's the goal, we all attain to the unity of the faith. My role as a pastor your role as a stay-at-home mother with your kids, your role as a person helping to host or lead a small group, your role as a more seasoned Christian who's mentoring younger Christians, all of us have the same purpose, the same goal, the same mission, to love Jesus by building up his body, by using his gifts given to us to create the maturity of his spiritual people by making it more unified in love. Now, Paul lists two major concerns for the Christian community here at Ephesus, but I submit to you these two ways, these two temptations are those that face the church at every age and every era of history. He says this, so that we may no longer be children tossed and turned by the waves. This first challenge is the hostility of a skeptical culture. This is what he means by being tossed to and fro by the waves. The church in every age, and we're seeing it now, uh, faces resentment, contempt, hostility, 
indifference from a culture that doesn't understand it and doesn't value what it values. How we respond to that will take wisdom and love. It always has, it always will. And our different opinions about how to respond to that will threaten our unity as the one body of Christ. Indeed, one of the great sources of division and strife within our own Christianity in our moment is that question. How do we deal with our culture? And the second challenge is in these words, carried about by every wind of doctrine. False doctrine has been present in every age. It was present at the time of this book being written in, in that first 20 or 30 years after the death of Jesus. The health wealth gospel right now is an example of false teaching in our age. The teaching that you can have your best life now is an example of that. Any teaching that the church has that makes any race or ethnic group inferior or despised is an example of that. Historically, the anti-Semitism that was resident within the church for millennia is an example of that false teaching and false gospel. The anti-black racism in the Western church for centuries is another example of that false teachings. The church is supposed to mature. It's supposed to guard itself. It's supposed to work in maturity, in love, against those two temptations. Paul says, I've given you apostles to preach the gospel and to write my New Testament so you know the gospel. All of you. So you can interpret and apply the gospel. I've given you teachers and shepherds to apply the gospel. Teachers to to apply it to your mind. Shepherds to apply it to your heart. I've given you evangelists to, to explain it to a skeptical world. You see what he's saying here. Is that I've given you all these things to grow this church in size. Evangelists bringing more people in. In strength, shepherds and teachers. Growing the gospel in our hearts and in our minds. Apostles to write it down so we know what it is. These are meant to help keep us one. Not to have us fight over who has more authority or status or influence in the family. Implications. The great danger here is an overly individualistic view of the church. We often fall into this pattern, I have, you have, you may be doing it right now. What is the church for me? What is it doing for me? And, and who am I in the church? Where, where do I stand? If we reduce ourselves to these questions, these questions are not irrelevant, but if they become prominent, if they become preeminent, these questions make us reduce church to every other kind of association we have in our culture, every other group we belong to. What is in it for me? What is my role in it? What is expected of me? That's what neighborhood associations, that's the questions we ask. That's the questions we ask about our health clubs, social groups, uh, volunteer groups at work. This is the way consumers act. 
It's transactional in its relationship. What do I get from it? What do I have to give? What's my cost-benefit analysis? It's not the way family members act. When someone in your family is hurting, as a family member, you drop what you're doing and you move to help the person who's hurting. That's the way the church is called to act. We don't always act that way. Skeptics who've seen us not act that way. You are right to call us out about that. I have a bad back. Um, I've had it for a while. I've been doing too many meetings sitting, and then COVID happened, and it got much worse. I can't ignore my back because my whole body's affected when my back is out. I'm now doing physio. I'm doing massages. I hate massages generally, but suddenly I'm a massage fan. Uh, I've got, I went to a doctor's appointment just to make sure that, that the, the, the treatment was appropriate. Why? Why am I stopping all this and focusing so much? Because when that part of my body is not working, my whole body is thrown out. Men and women, that's the church. That's Grace Toronto. We have one mission, to build up that one body, the church. And the particular body you are in is the part of the body you are called to. To build up that body in size, strength, so that it matures. Like a teenager whose body is growing, you want them to grow up and in strength. You want them to grow into that body, into the fullness of that body, into the maturity of the adult body. So we take care of it. We make sure that all the parts work together. We don't neglect. And so I say, if you're here and you're a Christian and this is your church, to quote a president many years ago, actually to paraphrase him and to change it, do not ask, what can my body do for me? But ask, what can I do for my body? How can I make this body better? How can I make this community better off? A more loving, more caring, more hospitable place for the people of this city. How can we strengthen those who are already Christians better? How can we help reach those who are interested in seeking God more effectively? How can we be better shepherds, better teachers, better evangelists, How can we go into new areas apostolically and help bring the gospel where the gospel isn't heard? We need you. We need you to ask that question. Not what can my body do for me. What can I do for my body? What can I do for the worldwide body of Christ? And it's not just us. How can you help the church universal? How can you help move the gospel ahead? That is what we are called to. The mature fullness of this body as it grows and as it strengthens itself. Now, if you're here and you're a skeptic, we need to ask you to help us because sometimes as an outsider, you see things that we don't. We all have blind spots. Even churches as a whole can have blind spots. How can we be better at showing the love of Jesus to the city? How can we serve those who aren't Christians better? How can we show the love of Jesus better? Help us to see what perhaps we are missing. Help us to be who we are called to be, even while you're investigating the faith yourself. 
if we do this, we will have fulfilled Paul's description in his last verses, where he says, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him, Jesus, who is our head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. That's what we're called to do. So how do we do that? couple of practical ways. Paul gives us two attitudes in the first few verses and three actions to follow. The two attitudes, they kind of frame, the three actions are between, they kind of frame that practical application. They are do it with humility and do it with eagerness to maintain the unity of the spirit. Humility. Humility is not thinking poorly about yourself. Self-condemnation is usually actually pride turned inward. You're not as good as you should be because I know you're better than that. No, no, no. It's thinking less about your own needs and wants. It's self-forgetfulness, not self-condemnation. How do you do this? Well, look at the second one. The second attribute, be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. If you are focusing on how can I build up the strength and the size of the body of Christ, if you keep asking that question, you'll stop asking the question, what's in it for me? Where's my role? Where's my recognition? I know this feeling. I know all of you who've been here at any length of time, something about this church has disappointed you. It just does. We're sinners. Most of you, I think, probably think I'm the least disappointed because I'm the senior pastor and I get to influence it the most. I need to tell you, I'm easily the most disappointed person in this church. I've poured my life into this church unlike any other thing I've ever done. I've had dreams and desires for this church that I have not even been able to tell you that motivated me to come and and replant it after the great work Stephen Beck did in the early and mid-90s and late-90s. This church has broken my heart so many times. It has disappointed me. So many times, far more, I think, than almost anyone here except perhaps my wife. But this church is not mine. It's not my project. I'm not here for what it gives me. How dare I focus on my needs, my wants, and my place. Christ died for this church to be born. Christ poured out his spirit for this church to be alive. Christ gave gifts to all of us to grow it together. And so as I think more about that and meditate more about that, the disappointments I have pale in comparison to the beauty I see and the broken heart moments that I have fade compared with the joy that this church has given because I see the spirit of the one God and I see the one love of Jesus being poured out to each other all the time by you, not perfectly, oh no. We can be so much better. But as we focus more and more on seeing our part of the body become more united, more beautiful, more merciful, more of a place for grace in the heart of the city, if we take our own consumeristic desires and put them away and allow us to see this church as Jesus himself, in all of his death and resurrection and beauty, even even despite its sin, I think we will be able to honor God with the way we 
do it now. A couple of actions it says here, and I'll finish with these. Three quick actions with gentleness, patience, and bearing with one another. This is how we're to act toward each other. Yes, we can disagree. Yes, we sometimes need to correct each other. But can we learn to do it gently? And that's what I am striving for. The last couple of years, I've really realized a lack of gentleness in my own spirit and in my own expression of the gospel. I want to get better. I'm working at it. I'm asking God for it. And I'm asking God for it for all of us. That there will be a gentleness, even when we confront each other, even when we challenge each other on false doctrine. And that secondly, there will be a patience with each other, that we don't just write each other off when we don't get immediate agreement. That's what our culture does. We write each other off so quickly. Oh, you believe in so you follow so oh you you liked so and so's tweet, I write you off. But the Christian has patience, realizing that we're all in process, that we all have feet of clay, we all make mistakes, we all have dark and broken hearts. And so we're patiently bearing with one another. And that's the final one. Let's bear with one another. Bear each other's wrong, sin, even each other's consumeristic mindset. Let's patiently, kindly, gently grow into this beautiful body that God wants us to be for his joy, for the blessing of the sea. Where do you get the power? You get the power of the one who is infinitely gentle, infinitely patient, and bore all of our sins on the cross for you and for me in compassion. He took our sin, and while we were sinners, he died for us, and his spirit lives in you. You not only are one, you have the spirit of patience, kindness, forbearance, and love of the one in whom you reside, Jesus Christ, by his spirit. Take his spirit now and ask his spirit to make you this kind of patient, kind, loving, humble, eager to keep the unity of the spirit of God and move in love toward each other to help build this body up. Let's make this the glorious body of Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank you and I praise you for this truth. I thank you and praise you for this moment that we get to be this kind of light of unity in this kind of darkness of disunity that our culture is facing. By your spirit, help us to remember who we are and to act that way. By the power of Jesus through your spirit, give us this patience, kindness, gentleness, forbearance, and love. For such is he, and such can be we. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.